after we went home on Easter Sunday, uh, we were given the news, and some of you probably heard it before you went in um, for Easter service, that there had been other fellow brothers and believers who were in another country in Sri Lanka who were brutally attacked and killed. Hundreds and hundreds died. Um, even larger number were wounded. And I was watching some uh, some footage of the people that were uh, that were that had survived and watching what they were going through, and I can't help but think of the irony that on a day to celebrate an empty tomb, people would be having burials for their family members that they were going to worship with that week, and talk about uh, a pain that we can't even imagine over here. So. The, what we have to remember is when we talk about our brothers and sisters, we are talking about worldwide brothers and sisters. It does not matter what country, it doesn't matter what language. There's something that transcends between us as believers. And if something like that were to happen here, I can guarantee you in Christian churches all over the world, they would be praying for us. And so let us do our part. Let's do that. If we could, if we could just pray and take a moment and ask the Lord to meet with them, okay? Let's do that. Lord, we, we come to you, Father, talking about our brothers and sisters who we don't know. But you know. Father, faces we can't, we've never seen and we can't imagine. Names we may not even be able to pronounce. But Father, they were brothers and sisters. There were people that, had we walked into their church, would have hugged us, would have welcomed us, would have smiled and maybe even cooked for us, would have shown us what it's like to be a family. And Father, for those that are just hurt and wounded, Lord, we just ask you minister to them. Lord, we as Christians do not pray for those who have died. But Lord, we can pray for those who are left. And Lord, I pray that you give strength beyond measure and peace that transcends understanding to those who are left behind. Father, for some families who they lost 10 and 12 family members just for going to a church and celebrating you. Father, the rest of their life in their own mind will see unbearable. Father, while we cannot imagine that pain, we can tap into the greatness of you. And we ask, Jesus, that you do something amazing in Sri Lanka. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you are new to us, you may not know how we walk through verses here, but we are walking in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. We are walking uh, verse by verse by verse. And in this particular case, we're in First and Second Samuel. We started this, I don't know, months ago. We're now in chapter 17. And sometimes we get through a chapter in a week. Sometimes it may take us a couple of weeks. And so in this particular case, uh, we're going to be picking up in 17, a great, great story. This really unfolds like a movie. I hope you use your imagination for this. Um, and, uh, and again, I'm, just, I'm looking around the room. I'm thinking, all I can think of is how much of a blessing it was to serve with you at Easter. I don't care where we meet. If it's under a tree, under a tent, in a building fanning ourselves. Pat, no guilt, but I wore a sweater vest just believing it was going to be cold today in here. No pressure for next week. (laughs) But I walk, I look in here, and I just can't help but pinch myself. What it's like to get dirty with you guys. Um... It just means a lot. And so to open up the word here, or under a tree, or under a tent, wherever we are, is a big honor. And as we look at 1 Samuel 17, it's a story, if you grew up in church, that you have heard. And oftentimes, if you're not careful, this is when you mentally almost check out, oh, David and Goliath, yeah, yeah, we're going to, you know, I've heard this one, how to slay our giants. You know, it's, it's more than that. Every time I look at scripture, I try to do this when I, when I talk to you. I try to find something that's fresh that God gives me, right? But also try to find something that's different that maybe I've missed before. There's a couple things in here that I think might just jump out. So let me catch you up to speed because there's a lot of verses, 50-some verses. So I'm just going to, I might paraphrase a couple of them. 
There is an army that is drawn up on the mountains of the Philistine side, and an army that is drawn up on the other side of the valley, on the side of the Israelites. And these armies have been raised up of ordinary people, farmers, shepherds, carpenters, those kind of things, gathered together, given weapons, and go to the front. We were talking about tens and tens of thousands of people about to go to battle. Now, here's what would happen often when they would draw people in for battle. There would be a time in negotiations. So as far as you could see, the encampment was gigantic on both sides. Bands are playing, drums are beating, trumpets and horns are being shouted. They're, They're chanting. They're doing everything they can to intimidate the other side. Often, nobility, maybe uh, the leaders would come through at night in meetings under flags of truce, and they would meet, and they would negotiate. And so they would find ways of coming to an agreement. Well, the Philistines had chosen another path. They had chosen man-to-man battle. Mano a mano. They brought out the greatest fighter they had and brought him out to the front of the ranks. And there, this man began to taunt. Pick up with me in chapter 17, verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. For if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. Remember that part. Remember that, because it's going to come up later. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be my servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11. When Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So here's, a, here's this a freak of nature. You know, Caleb would be like if I ask you, stand on this chair, then stand on a telephone book from Chicago, and well, you would get about your height. And he would have this, this javelin was between his shoulder blades. He could weave it with direct accuracy. The weight of the armor probably weighed as much as David. David is tending sheep. The great rescue of Israel is tending sheep. Meanwhile, there's a man taunting all of Israel. Why were the people dismayed and greatly afraid? Because they had lost heart. They were spiritually dry. They were defeated. And the same thing can happen to you and I. The enemy will often attack us when we are in a time of spiritual dryness and weakness. And so you look at this time and when you're in your life, when you're spiritually weak, when you're demoralized, when you're angry, when you're ticked off, when you feel like everything's just gone, you're vulnerable. Israel had not had a military victory in years. Even though it seemed like only a couple of weeks ago we were talking about King Saul, we were talking about Jonathan taking on a garrison and winning. This has been years now have transpired. Saul is an old man. He's given up. The Israelites were demoralized because another reason. Their leader was defeated from within. He was discouraged. The Philistines knew it. They had spies. They had people on the inside. They knew that he probably didn't wake up till late in the day, that he was discouraged and he wasn't sending out raiding parties anymore to advance the nature and or the natural borders of Israel. No, they knew their leader was defeated. On top of that, Samuel was no longer alive. Samuel the prophet who would take a burnt offering and give it to God and God would fight on our side. That was gone. They had a decrepit king. They had a remnant of an army and they're facing not only the Philistine army, they're facing a man who's never been defeated. This man was of fame. They had heard of him. This wasn't like, man, where did they drag this giant from? They had known of this man. 
This man was a killer. This man was somebody to be reckoned with. But what happens is we often lose our awareness of God's power and exaggerate the power of those who are opposed to God. Have you ever thought about that? Think about that. We often lose the awareness of God's power and exaggerate the power of those who are opposed to God. Have you ever had an incident where you have somebody who's just absolutely pushing against you and everything? It could be work, it could be school, it could be family, it could be anything. And you're so overwhelmed that all you do is think about their power and what they could do to you. Well, here we're about to see something is going to change. It is going to change on the backs of somebody they never expected. So David's tending sheep. What about his brothers? His brothers are in line ready to fight. His brothers are in battle. They're up there. They're the, the, the son's running back and forth. Uh, taking. He takes food here. He takes food there. He comes back. He watches the sheep. It's been 40 days. The brothers are engaged. By the way, they don't feed the army. They depend on family to bring in food. And so, let's pick up and see where we are. Back to the Ponderosa, as the old movie used to say. Verse 17. Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an epaph of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. What do you mean by that, token from them? They didn't write letters. So you'd... When a soldier or somebody would go away, they would take things with them and they would give things to someone to say, would you take this to my father? Would you take it to my mother? So they would know I'm well. They knew you were well by getting that token. Verse 19. Then Saul, now Saul, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took provisions and went, as his dad Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Let me stop right here just because we walk through here. He walks up. The army in the morning would be brought out. They would sound drums. Everybody slept during the night. David, I mean, Goliath wasn't out there yelling 24 hours a day. The sun would rise, people would eat breakfast, the armies would gather, you would stand there, spear in hand, 40 days, same station, same routine, here comes Goliath. Who is one of you that's going to come out here and tackle me on? And so when it says David gets here and he leaves his stuff with the keepers of the... You have to remember, civilians, everybody traveled. There was a huge commerce system that traveled. And you would leave things with people that you trust. Probably pay him a shekel or something. Verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out for the ranks of the Philistines. And spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Boy, those are four powerful words. Pretty cool. Goliath has been saying this for 40 days. He came out and spoke the same words. And then what? If you're watching the movie, you know the end of it. You're like, oh yeah. And David heard him. Verse 24. Really, I thought that was pretty cool anyways. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said... Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Wow, David's like, what? Oh yeah, man, any guy who kills him, he's going to make him rich. He's going to give you his daughter to marry. And better than that, no more taxes for the rest of your life. So when he says here, makes his father house free in Israel, no more taxation. No more, we need more money because we need an army. No more, we need more money because we're building a new palace. Verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Well, he's calling him out. Who's this uncircumcised man who defies the armies of God? Of the li- Notice he said living God. He's not talking about the plural gods that the Philistines had. Philistine gods uh, were made by men. They were made of stone. They were made of iron. They were made of wood. 
Some of you who remember when the ark was stolen by the Philistines, when they brought it into a room, they came in the next day and the head of one of their gods had fallen off. Maybe that impacted them. No, they just put them back on there and started worshiping them again. And so when David comes out and yells out that he should defy the armies, plural. He didn't say army. David is definitely referring not only to the physical army of Israel, but also to the spiritual army of angels and and knowing what God is capable of. But he also says this, the living God, not one of your gods that you created. Verse 27, And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So the people said, "Um, what What are you going to do? I mean, I know you're pretty brave. My dog is brave on the inside of the door. You knock on that door, my dog's just, I mean, he is the lion of loots, you know? They go up to him, probably not going to be that way. In this particular case, we, we look at this and we think, is David just being, I mean, here, this is a pretty rambunctious young man, right? He's standing in the middle of this army, chanting out, who's going to take, oh yeah, this is a lot of bravado now. But something strikes me here. Think about this one for a minute. This is what I grabbed out of it. David waited a long time to rise up. Years before, David was anointed king over Israel. It was said, you will be king over Israel. David then got a call because he was a great harpist. Hey, come on and, um, and play before us. But Play before the king. So they dress him up and sit him in the royal court. He would play a harp and put the king to sleep. Maybe that was going to be it. But then David stopped calling for the harp. And what did David do? Or the king stopped calling for the harp. And so David went back to tending sheep. And so he's tending sheep and he's probably wondering, did the prophet of God not tell me I was going to be king of Israel and I'm out here tending sheep? David waited and he waited and he waited. The beauty is in the wait. I didn't tell you this at announcements because it's pretty amazing. We got a phone call from Pat that said, you know, remember last, was it two weeks ago when we went here, we said, hey, it's going to be, you know, two more months on the building and that kind of thing. And then comes to find out that the contractor met with the state and what we thought could be road improvements we'd have to make on Newburger Road, we don't have to do. Saving up to $80,000 on our building. Big deal. You know, to, to sit there and think, Folks, I'm as guilty as anybody going, oh, come on, man. We got to get out there. We got to get out there. But who knows in the waiting game what God will have us do? You know, when you wait, you learn, which is why when you're on your back recovering, Bob Mason, back surgery, I guarantee you, while you're recovering, you see things and hear things and sense God where you might not otherwise because you're waiting. But what about us? We're too busy to wait. We move around, we get to church. I, I've been many times guilty of getting to church with wrong intentions. You know what my intentions were? You. You're that good to me. I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to see where you're going for lunch to crash your restaurant. I can't wait to see what you're up to. I can't wait in all this. And I could walk out and if I'm not careful, I missed why I really should have come. Ministry can do that to you. You start to do things well. People say, you ought to be a preacher. You ought to be a preacher. Why? Because you love on people. But it should be first and foremost because you love on God. And so here is David wondering and waiting what will happen. Verse um, 28. It gets good. Get ready. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left these few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your, of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. Folks, this is the earliest recorded record of sibling rivalry and argument. The oldest brother hears he had spoke to the men. So he walks up to him and he says, What are you doing here? 
Why are you here? Who did you leave the sheep with a few minutes ago? Or, you know, in the wilderness. Who did you leave the sheep with? And he says this, I know you in the evil of your heart. Man, this is a brother raking his brother through the coals. He goes, you've come down here to see the battle when you should be back there. Verse 29, and David says this, what have I done? Was it but a word? He literally, in this scene, says, what have, what have I said? And he, what does he do? He turns to someone who's not his brother. In verse 30, he turns away from his brother, from him toward another, and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. This reminds me of something. There is no greater pain than the disillusionment and discouragement by those closest to you. I just imagine every one of us in here have a story about someone that you loved and respected who said something painful to you to discourage you at some time. I just, I can remember a few moments, as, even as a, as a kid, when something would be said by somebody I thought was on my team. And he said something painful. And these brothers, well, they're looking around saying, what, what have you done? You're not supposed to be here. But I want, to, I want to take a second and think about this. Let's have a balanced outlook. The brothers, think about their spot for a minute. They're looking at Goliath knowing no one's going to go out there and fight him. And they know they're going to go into battle and here comes their kid brother. So before we throw their, his brothers out with a wash, can we be, let's be transparent and open. What would you do? You watch your kid sibling walk up when you've been out there for 40 days eating locusts probably or something like that and you and your kid brother walks up looking fresh and says what's going on where's the action and no wonder they piped off like they did oh they said what remember what about the sheep does anybody remember in verse 20 what did he do he put the sheep away don't miss the small things David had thought of that. David's going into this battle, but the reality is the Bible actually records a few sheep being watched over by a stranger. It reminds me of something. Little things and smaller matters are great parts of obedience. That's why in a church you always, always maintain the great parts, which are the smaller details. You can get caught up real quick if we start talking about what we want to do next. What we're going to do at the new property. What we're going to do at, at, a, at an event. What are we going to do at an outreach? But what if we miss checking to see how you're doing? What if we miss as a church moving and everyone in here assumes Chris is going to be taken care of and ministered to this week? If we miss the details we miss the big picture. There are many churches that are full of people focused on the big rocks and miss the seats that are right in front of them. Don't do that. So, we keep reading. Totally lost where I am at. 30? Whatever, 30. Okay, 32. David, thank you, Anne. You're here to... This is my conscience in case he correct me. Verse 32, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fall because of him, because your servant will go and fight this Philistine. David, piping off again in safety and surrounding of, other, of, his, of his comrades, he says this, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Why is he saying this? Because David's words touched the root of the troubles, the people's hearts. Verse 33, Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, but he's been a man of war from his youth. Now stop right here. You're thinking about this. The word gets back. The word goes back to Saul and says, there's somebody in the camp who says he can kill him. Saul hears this. They're like, bring the guy here. Nobody else has volunteered. He walks in. David looks at him. He goes, you're a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. He's been in battle. You step in here, you think you can do something. Now, in your mind, you're probably thinking, why does Saul not recognize David? Because David used to be his harpist. Well, the reality is, the last time David was in front of Saul, he was dressed, he was clean, he was bathed, fragrance, whatever the royal court puts all over you. He doesn't look that way right now. A shepherd, you know what they bathe in? They bathe in sheep 
urine, so they smell like the sheep. A shepherd, you got to remember that shepherds were the lowest of society. Shepherds weren't even allowed in major cities in Israel. Your testimony wouldn't even count in court. He walks in filthy, dirty, nasty. Saul looks at him and says, you're a youth. You're a shepherd. What are you going to do? Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear or took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And he rose against me. I caught him by his beard. Some of your Bibles may read his mane and, and struck and killed him. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And here it is, ready? And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. His same speech he gave up on the hill, he's given to the king. Man, maybe it's just not bravado. Maybe it's just not um, some sort of adrenaline rush. Maybe this is really how David feels. In verse 37, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. When I read the, um, the part that says, Go, and the Lord be with you, I don't know how he said that. I don't know if it was, Great, go! Lord be with you. You're our shot. Or I don't know if it was Saul so deflated he simply said, go, Lord be with you. Because you got to remember, Saul had lost love for his people. Remember, he was calling his own people Hebrews. This is what foreigners would call Jews, was Hebrews. So I don't know how, I don't know how he's saying this, but he simply says, go. And so, verse 38, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I've not tested them. So David put them off. Now, let's review. If you've grown up in church, how many of you have seen that little Scandinavian white looking kid with armor three times the size draped all over him. Have you seen that picture? The painting, like the guy, the little kid standing there, all his armor flanked. It is not how it looked. They would not have been silly enough to look at him and say, let's put an extra size three, you know, extra large on you as a kid. No, David took, uh, it was Saul's armor they put on him. They were gearing him up as best he could. The reason he denied it is because he had never tested it. Those of you who run would never, ever run in brand new shoes on a marathon. You wouldn't do it. You're not going to do it. You're not going to test a bike that you've never ridden before without practicing before. You're not going to go into battle with this kind of thing. And so David says, "Mm mm-mm. And a reminder that you and I as a church don't need to copy the weaponry and the tactics that every other church is doing. That means we're different. That means if God has called us to be different, and God has called another church to be different, let's work together with them. Let's not forget who we are. Let's not ever get tired of a church that in between the last service in here, pushed the wall back, painted the place, threw in a door, threw in ceiling tiles, re-ran electric, did all the work we could do, and did, did what you all did in masterful ways and still doing in here. And all it cost us was some paint. But you know the worst thing that could happen is we get out to the new place and then we stop doing things like that. We stop getting under trees or tents and we stop getting dirty. We stop calling on you to cook for people that are hurting and we rely on others. Don't rely on what others tell you you should look like and be like as a Christian. We don't need to do that here either. And so the story is about to pick up here in verse 40. Then he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch, his sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. He's not. He didn't go around asking somebody, can I have your sling? Can I have your weapon? He chooses the sling he brought. Now, I don't know what it looked like, but when I was in Afghanistan, I picked up, this is called a buskashi whip. It's really weird. The reason I brought this in is to kind of give you an, uh, an illustration of something. This 
Buskashi is this really weird game they play with a headless goat. It's like polo, but they play with a headless goat. It's really strange. But anyway, this here is what more than likely the sling would have been constructed of, of the sling part. So, like we mentioned before, forget the slingshot you bought at Gatlinburg at Stuckey's. It's not, that's not it. It would have been on a long pole. It would have been a long cord. This cord is incredibly tight and incredibly strong. This piece is made of 250 feet of goat intestines that would be stretched out in the sun and baked by the sun and brought in. And so twined with probably intestine, the smooth stone about this big would have been placed in a pouch and incredibly, incredibly accurate. He's going to go out and he's going to sling this stone and he's also carrying five stones. So why does he have five stones in there? Probably in case he missed. There's a lot of people say, well, he had brothers, and so he had each one for them. We don't know. You can conjecture all you want, but he had a reserve. Probably a smart man. He goes out with his sling. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David. I believe, by the way, in this picture, the army line is here, the army line is here. David has gone out to taunt him. Goliath had gone out of taunt. David goes out of taunt. Now, here comes Goliath into, he's being drawn out. Verse 42, and when the Philistines looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. By the way, it's not a compliment. That's like you look like a child. You're a city boy. What are you doing here? Verse 43, and the Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. That, folks, is a huge insult. To this day, if a Jewish person dies in a place and a facility in which he can be buried immediately, he's buried that day. He's buried by sundown. If you go to Israel, Orthodox communities, someone dies at noon, they're in the grave before that night. If you said you were not going to bury a body for several days, that's a terrible that's a that's a terrible insult. When you say you're going to leave the body out to be devoured by the buzzards and intentionally left on the field, it's the greatest pain and a sense of legacy lost and dishonor to a Jew. And so David uh, David hears this from Goliath. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, "You come to me with a sword." And with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that the, all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. What we thought was childish bravado in the ranks next to his brother. What we thought was maybe an attempt to impress a king is now the real deal. He is looking face to face, shouting out, couple hundred feet away, several hundred feet away to Goliath to say, I'm coming for you. And when I come to you, I'm going to cut off your head. Interesting point. David is not carrying anything to cut off his head. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. If we can stop for a second, those of you who have been to Israel, you know what, um, how they would sling these instruments. You would run and you would, you would have a certain way that you would sling the instrument. And those of you who were pitchers in baseball, you knew you had a certain method. Another pitcher had a certain method. Those who, who would just have a different form. But in any case, you would run and then you would gain momentum to give even more momentum to the weapon of the stone. And so whether he, he would come in sideways, whether he would jump in the air and fling it, whatever he did, he did it well. 
Verse 49, And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. We know at this point Goliath was wounded. He was stunned. Goliath had taken a fall and was not dead at that moment. He walks over to him, stands over him, prevails over him in saying he's conqueror in whatever position he was, but he unsheathed the sword. Verse 51, David ran over, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, what they do? They fled. Do you remember what they said they would do if somebody killed Goliath? Anybody remember? They were going to be servants to Israel, right? Yeah, they really held up that end of the bargain, didn't they? Well, they took off. And so they fled. Verse um, in 52 says, In the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath to the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shereem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Why is that a big verse? Why uh, David put his armor in his tent, but he took his head to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you think, would be pretty a safe city. This place was still embedded with tons of Philistines and people who were aligned with the Philistines. David walks in there holding Goliath's head. This man is saying, who wants some? This is a man, you don't forget, when you cut off the head in the middle of the Philistine army, you have to remember this. Don't lose fact that while he's standing there with the head of this giant in his hands, the army of Israel is probably a quarter of a mile away. He's standing right at the sideline, the embankment of thousands of Philistines saying, who wants some? And so now on top of this, he goes into Jerusalem. He's walking around and he says, this is what happens when you defy our God. This is what happens. And all of a sudden, in this boy, before sun is even set, a hero has come to the, to the front. He never expected it from him. Keep reading. Verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against a Philistine, he said to Abner, by the way, Abner is going to come into play in the next several weeks. Wow, crazy stuff. Abner, the commander of the army. He says, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered him, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Again, he wasn't dressed as he used to be as a harpist. Why was the big deal? Whose son are you? Jewish culture, knowing your lineage. We can't quite grasp the caste system that existed in that era. You and I joke around about, you know, some of you went to Hillsboro, right? How many went to Hillsboro? Yeah, I know. How many went to Chamberlain in here? How many went to Chamberlain? How many? Is there anyone unsaved who went to Plant High School? <laughs> you know the joke of the rivalry between the high schools. Nothing. Like what went on in that area at that time, that you would never date, you would never talk to, you never do business with anyone who was from a different tribe or a different family. That's why, who is he, where's he from? What father is he from? Is it nobility? Is it a priestly line? Who is it? No, it's a shepherd. They brought him in and he just wanted to know, who are you? David was still unknown to Saul, but he's not going to say unknown for a while. Picture this. Abner, the commander of the army, goes and gets him. David, come with me. Are you really going to bring the head? Yeah, I'm bringing that. <laughs> Walks in to see the king, and there is a head, lifeless head. 
David will not let go of. It's not a personal trophy to say, look what I did. It's a trophy to say, no one's going to ever do this again. No one's ever going to talk about God like this again. And so I say to you this. Here's not my angle, not a fresh perspective, but here's the thought that I have. As much as David, when he stepped out on that line, I don't care how brave he was, I don't care how sure he was, he was human. It's like us. I guarantee you when he walked out there, he felt the cloud of uncertainty. Have you ever had anybody pump you up and pep you up to a place of like you could do anything, then all of a sudden you go to do it and you're like, what have I done? What am I doing here? Uncertainty. And I still think about the time that you came July 4th and you walk, you rang the doorbell. That's how we know we have a visitor at my house because nobody rings the doorbell. And we open it and, and you said, I've been in my car for 15 minutes trying to talk myself out of walking in or getting the courage to come in here. You didn't know a soul. And you got brought in, met Annie, you met some others, and all of a sudden... Now, I can't imagine our church without you. Uncertainty will always take part in the step towards a new life. Uncertainty will fall on your mind and you'll, you'll question, you'll wonder, you'll think, how could I ever do this? How could I ever go forward with this? David took that battle to another plane. David... He looked at this and he didn't make it a battle over armies. He made it a battle over truth, over falsehood. He made it a battle over a living God, over false gods. He made it a battle over faith, over superstition. God knew that David was the one and David knew that God was the one that brought him there. David took this to another plane. Here's what I want to encourage you with. Here it is. Imagine for a minute if you took... You took any decision or anything that's discouraging you, anything that's wearing you out, and you took it to another plane. Well, everyone else in Israel saw that, no, there's no way they can win. And where David came in and said, I can do two things. I can assume the worst or believe in the best. Here's what happens when you have people moving against you, people wearing you down, people accusing you, people wrecking your life. You can focus on them. And you can assume the worst, and I guarantee you, your mind will prevail with fear. Guarantee it. Or, do we do what we should have done before we go to option B, and that's go to God about it. And say, God, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know what to do to get things right. And I don't know how that person's ever going to change their mind. But God, would you do it? You see, the hero of the story is not David. The hero of the story is God, the mighty warrior. Is our Lord who the mighty warrior is that David knew. Imagine if you believed in the best and what God can do. How that would change your focus. Guarantee you, 90-something percent of the stress that you live under, the pressure that you live under, the yoke and the burden of fear and anxiety and depression, all that would go away if a simple transition of saying, God, would you take it? We could put this on our walls in our kitchen. We could put it in the living room. But I guarantee you, we need to be reminded of it every single day. And how about when it comes to you? How about when it comes to you and you think, I know me too well. I know who I am. And if others knew me, they probably wouldn't sit next to me in church. How about if you saw you the way God sees you? How about for a moment? When it comes time to cave in, no. When it comes time to give up on someone, no. When it comes time when someone tries to talk you out of walking into, uh, out of ever walking into a no life, you simply say to the enemy, no. Why? Because uncertainty should never be your king. I look back at history and all I can think of is the great things that started off people that said, no more. Martin Luther goes up to a church door in Germany and nails a statement that says, no more. 
1776, in a colonial congress, a group of people rise up against the most powerful king in the world and say, no more. In 1944, on an unknown beach, against machine-gun-riddled boats, 19-year-olds step out and stand against Nazi terrorism, terrorism and say, no more. Rosa Parks, when asked to get up, utters a two-letter word that started a movement. No. Imagine in this world of uncertainty that when things begin to cave in on you and try to identify you and tag you and bring you down, you simply say, no. No more. Doubt and discouragement have a way of lying to you to make you think that that is the path of uncertainty. Or actually, that is the path of certainty. And that faith is the pattern of uncertainty. Folks, that is the greatest lie ever sold. The greatest uncertainty you could ever face is to do nothing. Move forward and take that step into a new life. If you've never received the Lord as your Savior and you've always wondered, well, there's uncertain things, take the step. Never going to try to push you anything. Never try to wear you out. But if you don't know, if you don't take that step, you won't know. I went to a nursing home that yesterday in an Alzheimer's unit. Walked in that door and to be in that room and look around at 20 or 30 individuals that were of all ages. Some as young as in their 60s. And there they were dressed in behavior mannerisms as just like they were before they walked in. Somebody, a lady walked up and said, oh yeah, I'm a, a home ec teacher. And I'm talking to her. And then a minute later, she tells me, you know, I taught home ec. Perfect hair, beautiful makeup, perfect dress. Another gentleman rises up, an older man, he takes off his hat and he starts shaking my hand and nothing made sense. I go by another gentleman who's turning around and a lady says, right here, it's right here. Here's a walker. It's right next to you. And, and I'm looking around thinking in that room, had you ever walked up to any one of those individuals? who once thought like you and I did and ever walk up and tell them that one day life will be like that. The certainty is this. Whether we take that condition, whether we die in a hospital bed, or whether we pass away anywhere else, the certainty is that no one outlives this life. What you think is uncertainty in faith is the most secure thing in the secure field that you will ever walk onto. And when next door, there's a food bank next door. Has anybody seen that sign? It's the Tampa Bay Harvest. If we're going to go check it out, who are these people? I walked up thinking, well, they're just people who just feed people. And I was like, I didn't know if they're a Christian organization. I walk up and they're praying outside. And I'm like, oh, that's a good sign. And all of a sudden, I meet this uh, minister. He knows somebody who's named Sixto. What a great name. You know? And uh, Hawaiian, I think, right? Something like that. And so, anyway, uh, he was a children's minister for I know, the Millers, Peter and Mike. And, and uh, so I, I walk up. He's telling me about this ministry. And I looked around. And I'm like, look at this place. I mean, we're talking... Gigantic warehouse after warehouse after warehouse full of pallets of food like you've never seen. He says, can you believe it? We get like 100,000 pounds of food every two or three days. We're trying to give it away. We're trying. He says, they've been doing this for a while. He said, we didn't know what to do. He said, I just prayed God do something. All of a sudden, one of the largest liquor distributorships, the daughter who becomes a Christian, walks in and says, hey, how about you need some funding and I'll do it. I'll just rent out your space. They come over here, they can't find anything. This place all of a sudden gives them a rate at one-fifth of what it was supposed to be charged. All of a sudden, Trader Joe says, would you take our food? 
Fresh Market says, well, you moved in back here. Would you take our food? The U.S. government calls and says, can we give you a trailer so in case there's an emergency, you can connect with FEMA and unload this food? And this man is sitting there telling me whose church is about this size, operating the largest food bank in the state of Florida, and he's sitting there telling me, I never imagined in my mind or in my life what God would do. That is what happens when you step out on the plane of uncertainty. All of us want a miracle, but none of us ever want to be in a position to need a miracle. Was it Will Rogers who said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens? (laughs) The reality is, all of us want the knowledge that God is there, but it's scary on that field. It's scary to take that step. Colin, I saw you at Easter playing on that beautiful guitar. I guarantee you, you probably went to Pam. What am I doing? What am I doing getting in this band? All the band could do and Wes could do is, man, I just played one of the greatest. This guy, this guy played in, in the Grand Ole Opry. This guy's incredible. The encouragement you gave to others. By what? By stepping out into the field of uncertainty. By doing the least little thing of walking up to someone who you don't know. Who are you? This is my name and this is who I, who I am. In the field of uncertainty of visiting those who... You'd never visit. Sitting with those who you'd never otherwise sit with. In the field of uncertainty, who knows what blessings await you? And who knows what it will do to change the focus and change the direction of our church? Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we look to you not only in times of trial and and tribulation, but Lord, we look to you in moments like this to give us the courage to step out into the field of uncertainty. Lord, beyond the promise of what we have and know in our life of the land of safety and security, but Lord, into your realm. Lord, David could have easily stayed in the ranks of logic and reason and never stepped forward. And thank God he did. And God, for those of us who are stuck in the land of culture, logic, and reasoning, Give us the courage, Lord, to take a step. And who knows what will happen, not only to others, but in our own life. Thank you, Father, as in David's life, you gave him a promise a long time ago when he waited. And for those in here who felt a calling to serve you, Lord, there's been a wait. Father, may we find you in that journey of wait. May we find you in that first step of uncertainty. We pray these things in Jesus' name.